today to our conversation about jobs in, in food retail. Um, the Economic Opportunities Program, uh, we advance promising policies, strategies, and ideas to help low and moderate income Americans connect to and thrive in today's changing economy. Um, and in particular, we look at both entrepreneurship and business ownership as an economic opportunity strategy, and we look at access to work and quality jobs as critical to economic opportunity in the United States today. Um, in our Working in America series, we look at the experience of work and how work can be better for working people and can support thriving businesses and communities as well as individuals and families. Uh, we're very grateful for to the Ford Foundation, to the Prudential Foundation, and to the Walmart Foundation for their support of our Working in America series. Um, so I'm sure many of you had some food last week. <laughs> And uh, some of you may have had a lot of food last week, if you were like me. Um, uh, and you might have had to run out to the, your neighborhood grocery store because you forgot the potatoes, or you forgot the onions, or you forgot the sweet potatoes, or all of the above. Um, uh, so today's event, we encourage you to think about the frontline retail workers who shape our experience shopping uh, during the holidays and throughout all of the year. Um, and today's topic was really shaped by our experience uh, managing a program called Reimagine Retail, um, which we're uh, particularly grateful again to the Walmart Foundation for their support of, um, and which explores ways to enhance job quality and improve economic mobility for retail workers. Um, and I want to give a special shout out to my colleague, uh, Jenny Weisbord, who has been managing that project. Where is Jenny? There is Jenny. Um, and uh, yes, please do clap for Jenny. And, and, and has been uh, really instrumental also in helping put together today's event. Um, and uh, I also, also uh, while I'm giving shout outs, I want to give a shout out to my colleague, Corby Kimmer, who just ran away, but will be back, who runs the Institute's food program and was also helpful to us in shaping today's event. Um, uh, and, and as we've engaged with workforce providers and retail businesses across the country, we've learned that actually grocers are especially eager to learn about and test new training and job quality programs. In this highly competitive industry, many grocers believe that they can gain an, a competitive advantage really by providing better jobs to their frontline workers, which helps them provide better services to their customers and, and, and run a quality business. Um, so today I also want to mention that we're doing an early release of a new publication on the partnership between Pete's Fresh Market, a rapidly growing grocer in Chicago, uh, and a workforce development provider that we've worked with for many years, Instituto del Progreso Latino. Um, and it's part of a new series on promising strategies from our Reimagine Retail Network, and so you can find this profile and resources um, on, the, on the resource table, which I believe is just outside the room. Okay, so uh, I would ask, since we are both live streaming and recording this event, that you please do silence your phones, um, but please do tweet uh, in today's event. Our hashtag is TalkGoodJobs. Um, and um, I'm really delighted now that I uh, get to launch our event with, um, with uh, remarks from uh, Congressman Dwight Evans. Um, he represents Pennsylvania's 2nd Congressional District. He is currently serving his first term and just won re-election uh, to a second term for the state's new 3rd District. He serves on the Agriculture and Small Business Committees and is co-chair of the Congressional Black Caucus uh, Development and Wealth Creation Task Force. 
um, in the House and in his 36 years as a state representative in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives, Representative Evans has focused on expanding access to economic opportunities for Philadelphians. He spearheaded development of the Pennsylvania Fresh Food Financing Initiative, a public-private partnership to finance supermarket development in underserved communities, a critically important issue. Um, this program financed 88 grocery stores and created more than 5,000 jobs in Pennsylvania and became really a national model. So we're just thrilled to have Representative Evans here to spend a few minutes with us framing today's conversation and offering some perspective um, on, the, on, this, on the issue we're talking about today. So uh, Representative Evans, I welcome you to the panel. Thank you again for being with us. Good afternoon to all of you, and it is absolutely my pleasure um, <clears throat> to be a part of this discussion because it couldn't be a more appropriate time with what's going on uh, in that little building not too far from here uh, and what's taking place nationally because I do believe there's a direct connection between your discussion and your influence that you will have uh, in what takes place. Uh, and I couldn't appreciate having this opportunity being here. Um, as you heard, I, I grew up in a section of Philadelphia which was called North Central Philadelphia. And North Central Philadelphia, for those of you who know, it would be where Temple University is. Uh, basically, that is the section of the city of Philadelphia that I grew up in. Um, and recalling very distinctly, I remember there's an avenue called it's called Cecil Moore Avenue now. At the time when I grew up, it was called Columbia Avenue. And I remember seeing a supermarket by the name of Best Market. It was called Best Market. And it was right along Columbia Avenue. And that was the location where everybody went to shop. Stayed in the neighborhood a little while, and then we moved out of that neighborhood and moved up into another neighborhood in Germantown. And recall very distinctly seeing another location uh, called, at that time, it was called Pen Fruit. It was a supermarket called Pen Fruit. So we moved out of that particular neighborhood and moved and I saw a place called Shopping Bag. So the common denominator I observed as a kid growing up is that supermarkets were an anchor of, of a community. Uh, it was a location where people would come and, and shop and gather and people meet up with each other. But it, it was an anchor of a particular community. And, 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 and the common denominator, I always ask people, does anybody do not like food? <laughs> Can you raise your hand and tell me if you don't like food? Let's see one gentleman raised back there. I'm going to try going without it just for a, a second or a minute and see how long your existence. So, Ellen, you know, as a kid growing up, seeing that, that whole element of supermarkets always located in some type of neighborhood. So let's accelerate from when I was a kid to when I was elected to the Pennsylvania legislature. And once elected to the Pennsylvania legislature, um, the one committee I always wanted to be on was the committee I thought was the committee, and that was the money committee, was the appropriation committee. I was on that particular committee for 28 years, and I was chairman for 20 years. That's the same, very same committee that Ben Franklin held. There's a little gap between when I held it and Ben Franklin. When Ben Franklin held it, it was called the Ways and Means Committee. When I held it, it was called the Appropriation Committee. 
So if you understand, if you wanted to drive outcome of public policy, what better way to drive outcome of public policy than to be connected with how things are financed? Because things are financed drives you an outcome to what you want to do and effectuate a particular community. So there was an organization, you're going to hear from this organization, from a, uh, a person who's going to speak, Yael, called the Food Trust. And the Food Trust did mapping uh, and was mapping about the insufficiency aspect of food deserts. The fact that what I described to you, when I described to you about those three supermarkets in those different neighborhoods that I lived in, Food Trust did a mapping process where they showed there was a disappearance of supermarkets. As a result of the disappearance of the supermarkets, what I don't think we understood then, like I understand now, is that these supermarkets basically is moving to the suburbs. And the only thing that was left in these particular communities tend to be local corner stores, and they do serve a purpose, but it's not the same thing as having healthy choices available to you in terms of having supermarkets available to you. So when I was in the legislature, one of the things I said to a group of members, as members of the, the Pennsylvania Legislative Black Caucus, is I said, how exactly can we go about affecting a community? So everybody came up with their different ideas and all this stuff. And I said, look, something very basic came to me as a kid. It's called supermarkets. Now, I didn't discover them, but I got an idea for you. So we came up with an initiative uh, at that particular time where we set $30 million aside. $30 million, $10 million for three years, and formed an alliance with the Food Trust and formed an alliance with the Reinvestment Fund. The Reinvestment Fund was sort of like the banker of the $30 million. Their task was to form an alliance with the private sector and come up with another $140-something million. So it was public money and it was private money. After the Food Trust had done the mapping, basically the reinvestment fund was responsible for the uh, location of these, these particular supermarkets throughout the Commonwealth. But I want you to understand, my whole motivation was to create jobs. It was not necessarily, you know, I've suddenly become the food champion. I'll talk a little bit about that. But all of a sudden, my whole aspect was, how could we create jobs? What exactly was a way to create jobs? Well as was just described, uh, we created 100 supermarkets across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and it generated 5,000 jobs. A little bit about Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania has 12 million people, 60-something counties, and Pennsylvania is a rural state. You know, people think of Philadelphia and they think of Pittsburgh, but in between Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, it is a rural state. Farming is very important in Pennsylvania. So it was that combination of myself as a person who grew up in urban. You know, one of the first things a member said to me when I came here, he said, how many farms do you have in the district? I said, wrong question. How many consumers do I have in my district? There's a direct connection between consumerism and producers. I have the largest future farmers of America school in my congressional district. It's called Saul Agricultural School. And most people wouldn't think of Pennsylvania as having that. In other words, that's a pipeline into the system of farming and the needs of farming. So let's think about that. We laid the groundwork. 
with the Pennsylvania Finance, we had Food Trust, we had the Reinvestment Fund, and all of a sudden we had this energy. And the reason I only did it for three years is because I wanted to demonstrate to the marketplace, banks tend not to invest in retailers. I wanted to demonstrate to the marketplace that this is something that could work. Well, in 2008, there's a certain person running for president by the name of Barack Obama. And then there's a first lady who is looking for a niche. And the niche she's looking for is with child nutrition. So where does she come and announce the program, Let's Move? She comes to Philadelphia. Why did she come to Philadelphia? Because we had an initiative, which was the Fresh Food Initiative. She went, they went in 2008 and 2009. We then introduced the idea, a group of us, along with the Food Trust, go to the White House. We present the idea to the White House. Now, we said no pride of authorship. We turned the complete idea over to the White House, and then they piggybacked it on Let's Move. But then they didn't just stop there. They got the policy implemented in the Farm Bill. Uh, Congresswoman Marsha Fudge from Ohio was the one who carried the wood, who's on the Agriculture Committee. At that time, I was still in the state legislature, and I never thought I'd be coming to Washington, D.C. So I come to Washington, D.C., and what committee do I get on? Is the Ag Committee and the Small Business Committee. So I take the same practices that I did at Pennsylvania. You've heard states are the laboratories of democracy. Well, here was a perfect example. What was taking place in Pennsylvania, we could duplicate the concept throughout the entire United States. But what I also discovered is that food deserts are not just on the domestic side, on the international side. When I was in South Africa, I saw that there was needs, there's challenges of food deserts across the world. It is not just a problem that is just here in America. Food deserts is a problem all around the world because what I've said to people, food policy is foreign policy. Food policy is foreign policy. And I said that exactly to Madeleine Albright because food is one of the things in the toolbox. So when you really think about the direction and where we are, your conversation that you're having, in my view, is a very appropriate time in what's taking place with the Farm Bill and what's taking place in Washington. And what I've said, and, 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 and I'll sort of close with this, what I think is lacking is people taking real ownership of this issue. I'm not talking about just from a SNAP perspective, but it goes much more than that. Most of those uh, supermarkets, I tell you, they have generally maybe 100, 120, 150 employees. They're entrepreneurship opportunities. They build communities. They anchor communities. If you look at what takes place in a community, uh, I can take you a place where there's a supermarket and then there's a Home Depot. And then from this, there's a spinoff to retail. Matter of fact, the food trust will talk to you about their healthy corners, farmers markets. There's a whole spinoff that is connected to the entire food industry. And it is an asset. When a country has the ability to feed itself, it is in a stronger position. But it also can become a national security issue because the whole question around farming, what takes place with farming, is an issue we don't pay enough attention to. And I don't think from a, what I've, in the two years I've been here, I mean, I think people give lip service to it, 
but I don't think ownership is there. I don't think it's like in the DNA of the political leadership, Democrat or Republican, in terms of really understanding the value of what asset that we have. I see among a lot of young people, urban farming, uh, organic farming, all of those aspects are there and all of them offer opportunities to take advantage of it. That's why I've just discovered in two years of being here. So I say to you that the conversation you're, you're having, in my view, is very appropriate. We got to push the envelope and not, you know, think traditionally the way we have thought. As I described to you when a gentleman said how many farms I had in the district, and I said, again, that's not the issue. It's how many consumers. And when you really think about it, I don't care what society you have, food is a very important element. Again, I wish you the best in your discussion. Uh, I hope you're very bold in your thinking and not fearful to keep pushing all of us who are in the political process, as well as the private sector, can play a role. Thank you very much. Thank you again, Congressman Evans. That was really uh, terrific. Thank you for those remarks. I'm uh, delighted to welcome our panelists uh, to the to the stage as they are uh, taking their seats. I will do a very brief uh, sort of names to faces introduction of them, but um, you have their bios and materials uh, in your packet, so um, please do take a look. We have a terrifically accomplished panel for you today. So, uh, so. Um, to your right, uh, right next to, to me, uh, we have uh, Seilu Timbo, Director of Diversity at Hy-Vee. Uh, next to Seilu, we have Yael Lehman, President and CEO of the Food Trust. Next to Yael, we have Scott Emmerich, Executive Director, Youth Build Philadelphia uh, Charter School. Uh, and uh, next to Scott, we have Claire <laughs> Babineau-Fontenot, CEO of Feeding America. And we're very delighted to have Eric Kessler with us today to moderate today's panel from uh, founder, principal, and senior managing director at Arabella Advisors. So Eric, I turn it over to you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and thanks to the Aspen, Aspen Institute. And um, thank you, Congressman Evans, for your leadership in, um, uh, in Pennsylvania and here on the Ag Committee. Your, your, your vote on this farm bill and all the other policies in front of you are so important and we appreciate you and honor your leadership. Um, what a terrific panel. This is exciting. <laughs> um, I was excited by this invitation to be here with you all. Um, I, I, these four leaders represent uh, um, some of the most important voices in our food system right now, obviously uh, with Hy-Vee and, and one of the most important retailers in the country, but then um, three of the most far-reaching and impactful nonprofit organizations working in this sector as well. Um, uh, they might be too shy to, so I will encourage you to go to their websites to support their work tomorrow or today is Giving Tuesday. There might be a match. Good job, good on job. The, uh, <laughs> uh, there might be a, a donation match on the Feeding America website. I'm sure that um, uh, in 20 minutes there will be on the Food Trust website. Uh, um, and you can do it right on your phone. Scott's work as well. So, so, uh, so let's get that out of the way and say that these, these folks are real leaders and, and deserve your support in every way that you can. Um, uh, uh, from my perspective at Arabella, where you know I spend all my all my time advising donors and investors on how to have an impact, um, particularly in the food system, um, uh, um, uh, we we think about the fact that to have good food, you must have good food jobs, and that's what we're here to talk about. That um, uh, one of the most important ingredients to a good food system 
um, is equity from farm to fork. And that includes um, equity for the 4.8 million um, food retail workers, 4.8 million food, food retail workers. And I can't forget the terrible irony that so many of the workers who grow and package and distribute and sell our food can't afford the food that they grow and package and distribute and sell. Um, and we'll talk about that today and get your perspectives on this. Um, I think a lot of this discussion is driven by some key trends, um, uh, uh, um, particularly in this low unemployment environment. Um, uh, um, we're seeing higher turnover than ever in retail jobs. Um, uh, and of course, and I'm sure that um, Selu will talk about this, but the need for retailers to incentivize um, their employees um, uh, to keep ret retention in these jobs. Um, and then in this environment, we'll talk a little bit later maybe about, about some of the online um, uh, retail environment that's growing. Um, uh, so many customers, I know um, I do my shopping um, in physical stores, and I think about that in-store experience. Um, uh, and so much of that in-store experience are the, the workers at the store. And um, you want to be greeted by workers that are happy, that are satisfied, that are well-trained, that are engaged. Um, and so we'll talk a little bit about, um, about, uh, about programs that enable that. I keep thinking back to um, Sam the Butcher. Sam the Butcher? Yeah. Everybody that over, is over 45 just nodded their head because they remember, <laughs> they remember Sam the Butcher from, uh, of course, the famous Butcher and the Brady Bunch. Yeah. Um, one of the happiest food retailer workers in America. Um, uh, and we need more Sam the Butchers, in my opinion. Um, so we're going to talk about um, uh, um, the, why things aren't as good as they should be, what can make them better, of course, what you all are doing about it. Um, and I'm interested in your personal perspectives. Um, uh, some of you work in the sector. Uh, you, you, each of you work in the sector now, but some of you have prior uh, life experiences that um, are, are equally as important as valuable. So, um, so, so let's dig in. Um, uh, um, and Claire, I'm going to start with you um, I, um, in many ways because um, you are perhaps newest to this sector, and I think your fresh perspective being in the, in, in the, in, in the, in the driver's seat at Feeding America now for only a few months um, uh, makes your perspective even, even more valuable. Um, uh, but let's go back to, um, to, to, to where it all started. I am amazed that you grew up in a family um, uh, with parents who fostered 100 children. Wow. Is that right? That's about right. So I was the third child. I was the baby of three, and I remember fighting for scraps of food with my, brother, with my two older brothers. I don't know where you fell in that 100, but, um, but I'm sure there was a fair bit of uh, um, fighting for, for food in your family. Um, and now to go from that experience to an organization that, that, that serves four billion meals a year. Um, um, how, tell me about your sort of personal, personal perspective on this. How did your sort of life experiences get you to where you are today? Mm -hmm. um, we'll then um, spend more time on Feeding America's strategy and where you're going. But, but, but tell us sort of where you're coming from on oh, this. Sure, sure. So I actually want to start with a couple of housekeeping matters, if you'll indulge me. One is... Um, I don't know that retail is what kept a smile on Sam's face. It might have been Alice. <laughs> Behind every good butcher. <laughs> and the second is, I wanted to tell Maureen, as, as we were in the green room, I overheard someone talking, and I thought, this 
food is really a magnet for the conversation today in more ways than one. I heard uh, a gentleman, I really did hear him say this, so I won't look in his direction, say, when I'm thinking about which events to go to, I just check for which one includes food. And, uh, voila. So, um, so I didn't say that, but I'll take the. But I, I agree with the sentiment. <laughs> so to to my 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 personal um, relationship with hunger, it it began as I have no memory of not having an awareness of hunger in America. Um, when my mother was pregnant with me in September of 1963, yes, I do tell my age, 53 and counting, yes, 54 <laughs> and counting, yes, yes. Um, and when she was pregnant with me, she learned that there were two children in a neighboring community who uh, were suffering from neglect. And uh, their parents did not have the wherewithal to provide them with the basic essentials of life, including food. Um, so um, that started something in my mother. She, did, she could not turn away from a child in need. So throughout the course of my life, by the time I arrived, um, I was outnumbered um, by uh, siblings who had, in fact, confronted hunger. And the whole course of my life, I was able to see it. And there are 108 of us in all. And my mother taught us not to differentiate by biology. So there are 108 of us in all. Um, but what has I found striking is how that experience, because of that experience, I thought I understood hunger. Mm. Because I saw it. Mm. Um, what I understood was the impact of hunger on people. And I understood the impact of nourishing food on people. But I did not understand hunger in America. I was operating under lots of misconceptions. And uh, wonderful people like the three who are sitting right on the front row there. Colleagues been, from Feeding America. Colleagues from Feeding <laughs> America have been helping to disabuse me of some of the notions that I had. And it dawned upon me that if I, a person who had such a unique relationship with hunger, um, didn't understand what was actually happening in the country, then maybe other people in the country don't understand either. So when we start talking about things like work and hunger, I would never, if you'd asked me before I moved into this role, um, what are the, the vast majority of people who are hungry or who are food insecure, describe them. Yeah. I would not have said 68.8% of them are working families. I would never have said that. Um, I would not have spoken to um, what that really means and the fact that, that not only um, do you need a job, right, but that the quality of the work matters fundamentally to your ability to actually sustain your family mm -hmm. and to make basic necessities of life, pay for basic necessities of life. I, I learned things about, um, about New York City, which just recently had an analysis come out and that in New York City, of working families, 40% of working families cannot make ends meet. Mm. Um, uh, let's take um, DC. According to a study in 2005 in this district, um, a single parent with one child in preschool and one child in, um, in grammar school um, would only be able 
to afford 41% of likely her basic needs, be able to pay for 41% of her basic needs based upon a salary of around $20,000 a year? Well, we know that that data is dated because we have more recent data from Somerset, Somerset County over not very far away from here in Maryland that shows same demographics in Somerset, um, that you need over $70,000 a year yeah. in order to, to take care of basic necessities. So what I'm learning and what I think is, I, I'm hoping will be helpful to the effort yeah. is those types of realizations help me to realize that there are lots of things that I don't understand. Okay. So it's causing me to rethink hunger um, in ways that I didn't think about it before. And it's also causing me to be a bit more patient with other people who don't understand. Because mm -hmm. I would have, I would have assumed that those who didn't, who had, who said things that were not accurate, that they were saying those inaccuracies, and they knew better. Yeah. Um, I didn't know better. So now I assume maybe they don't know better. So part of my job is to help them to know better. Well, um, thank you, and, and welcome to this movement. We thank we you. need you, and we're 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 thrilled to have you part of this. Um, Scott, you're, you're, you're sitting alongside two very well, represented from two very well national organizations. Um, your organization is, is really a local one in Philly that I suspect some folks here are less familiar with. So um, um, tell us a bit about Youth Build Philadelphia Charter School. I, um, uh, I, I'm, uh, we, we heard the congressman talk about the, um, uh, about the, the ag school mm -hmm. in, in Philly. Um, you're in the you're in the same neighborhood, but working at a very sort of different end of the Correct. training spectrum. So um, uh, students had come to the to the the charter school. Why are they coming, and what are they sure. getting out of it? Sure. Yeah, and Youth Build has been part of workforce and leadership development for a long time. Twenty six years in Philly, <clears throat> excuse me, forty years nationally, um, but it was a bit more recent to to food retail over the last three years in Philadelphia. Um, so yeah, I think starting with the young people, um, 18, 19, and twenty year old amazing young leaders, all residents of the city of Philadelphia. Um, yes, we're operating in the same community that Representative Evans described in his opening comments, but we're pulling from 30 plus zip codes across the city. Um, all those young people previously left high school without a diploma. Um, we enroll about 225 young people a year, and I can honestly say that the, the least interesting thing about them is that they left high school without a diploma. Mm. That, that fact tells you a lot about the systems, education, workforce, oftentimes criminal justice, that they left, it doesn't tell you anything about how brilliant and talented and creative and empathetic and resilient and hardworking the young people are who walk in our doors. So I start there because we'll talk a lot about pathways and yeah. appreciate fresh pathways. I think it's really meaningful, but I also believe fundamentally that it's impossible to create a meaningful career pathway with a young person you don't believe in. So the thing I'm most confident about Youth Build Philly is that we believe deeply in the inherent <coughs> leadership potential of young people. Um, Eric's question was about barriers, so our students certainly do face barriers. I think they're similar to a lot of barriers facing low-income learners across our city and many communities across this country. Um, chief among those, access to quality health care, child care, transportation, um, homelessness, housing insecurity, hunger, food insecurity. In terms of Youth Build's response with students, um, it's primarily relational, so we do a lot of mentoring work, counseling work. Um, we do a lot of need-based grants around most of those barriers that I just described. We do a lot of partnerships for refer referral systems. 
And on our best days, that work is always with students and not to students and not for students, yeah. mm -hmm. which practically means that young people have choice and voice and decision-making around how they experience those resources, those supports, leadership roles, both in the academic setting, the vocational setting, and on the service site. All our young people are AmeriCorps members, so students spend time, half their time in the academic setting, half their time in one of four career pathways, one of which is directly related to the conversation here today. I'll describe that in a bit. Um, but at the end of either 12 months or 15 months at YouthBuild, young people have internalized an ethic of service and see themselves as service providers instead of service recipients. Mm. Um, so I'll, I'll close with a, a final 45 seconds, because Eric gave us a good reminder to be, to be brief. Um, with YouthBuild's three core values, which are respect, excellence, and perseverance, because in a lot of ways, I think the why behind what we do is actually more important than the how of how we're actually implementing program. Um, so for us, respect means that we know you as a learner as a, and as a human being that YouthBuild will know you more deeply than any school or any program that you've ever experienced. Uh, for excellence, that means that we provide a ton of supports and a lot of opportunities, but the core model is that we're coupling high support with high expectations. Hmm. So you're leaving our program with a diploma and a vocational certification, one of, career, one of four career pathways, and that diploma and that certification has meaning because we're holding a bar for excellence. And then third and finally, perseverance. And I know that perseverance and grit and resilience have become a, a bit of a buzzword in education and workforce circles. But I think that's for good reason. It's a critical skill. And we think a little bit differently about perseverance in that we're not actually teaching it, we're activating it. Meaning the young people who come into YouthBuild have already demonstrated perseverance in a lot of life systems outside of YouthBuild. Our job is to create the conditions and the, the culture where they can actually demonstrate that perseverance in workforce settings and education settings. Um, so that's us on our best days with full recognition that it's much easier to climb that space of our best days here in a panel in DC than it is <laughs> doing the, the real work every day in North Central Philadelphia, but that's who YouthBuild strives to be. Well, it sounds like a, a huge return on investment, which is what the donors that I work with um, look for. So hats off to you and the, and the folks at YouthBuild for building this. Taylor, I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip over to you. Um, I, I don't know what the average <coughs> average job length is in a food retail job, how long people typically keep those jobs. I suspect it's less than 18 years, which is <laughs> how long you've been at Hy-Vee. Um, you were telling me earlier uh, that it was challenging for you to get your first job at, uh -huh. at Hy-Vee, that they, they weren't, they it was. I think your, your youthful energy, let's call yeah. it, maybe. Mm -hmm. That's a nice way to say it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about your journey in the food retail world, 18 oh. years at Hy-Vee from uh, sort of front line. You've done every job done every uh, up job. and down the line. Um, actually, 21 now. 21 18 times. 18 years full-time. 21. So, um, you know, I started when I was two. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, honestly, I didn't, I, I wanted to work at Hy-Vee. It was kind of the cliche, cool thing to do. You know, there's a national uh, restaurant chain right now that comes is coming out saying that they're everyone's best first job. Yeah, I'm not gonna say their name, that's okay. Um, we, that's the way we feel about the first job. You know, when I was coming through Hy-Vee, it was kind of like, eh, it's your first job, you start, you bagger, what have you. Um, I wanted to work there, but I didn't. I applied, never got hired, which was fine. Um, ended up having some other jobs, and um, a couple of my best friends and I went and applied to another store. I still didn't get hired. This is another store up the street from where I lived, and my dad went in there every single day for a solid month and bugged him. Hey, do you have a job for my boy? He's only working three hours a day. He needs more work. <laughs> He's kind of lazy. He needs more work. He needs to be working. So they finally hired me. 
Um, I think it was more to get him to be quiet and leave me alone. <laughs> Um, probably not thinking I was going to last for a long time, but the thing is, is that you know I look around and I'm still here, and it's it's kind of one of those fun things where you pinch yourself because, you know, you didn't really go there. I didn't really go there looking for a career. I looked for a job my last year, senior football and sports. Knew I was going to University of Iowa at the time. Maybe could have a part-time job on the on the side, but I ended up falling in love with the place and falling in love with food, you know, um, and people. The two biggest, um, you know, two biggest. Uh, parts of the job that everyone seems to love is food and people. And connecting those two in a building at a place I got paid to do, I got paid to talk to people and uh, make food. I mean, it was just a good good fit for me. Um, really, as, as you continue to progress in your career and you have someone say, hey, you should think Ivy's a career. Why do I want to do that? I'm supposed to go work with Bill Gates. I'm a computer science major, right? Mm -hmm. Sit and design computers. That's what I want to do. Didn't have the, didn't have the patience for that. But I did have patience to make sure everyone who came through the front doors was taken care of, mm -hmm. uh, and made sure everyone else who worked around worked with me was, you know, enjoying the workspace. So I went full time in 19. It was a year I took off from college. Didn't really know what I wanted to do. Wanted to make sure I took the time to think it through. Um, ended up going full time, and then re going back to school full time. So I kind of did both and burned the candle for a few years. But um, with uh, I have a degree in African American World Studies and also an entrepreneurship certificate and business minor. So I was able to practice learn in the classroom and then practice at work some of the, you know, the business principles and, and all that when it came to the actual business aspect of it. I mean, frankly, it's really simple. It's you put items out for sale and you sell them, right? And you take care of people mm -hmm. and you make sure that's enjoyable. So um, got to spend time running stores, which being a store director, especially for our company, is a very unique, very proud, um, uh, proud role um, that you can hold. And, you know, as you hold that role, um, you have the opportunity to influence not only just your employees, but the communities you serve, your business partners. I mean, I'm, I'm just sitting here thinking, sitting with this panel here, knowing that we work with Feeding America on many different levels. We like to work with the youth in our communities, um, speaking to youth, connecting, because that's our future work pipeline, um, our future connection, also their customers. We want to take care of them um, in the happy community. So I was fortunate enough to run stores for about 10 years, four different stores for 10 years, and each and every one of those stores was different. And I think it's important to say that because um, we were taught to run our stores very autonomous, and every single one of those stores and those communities had different needs. Some of them uh, maybe were socioeconomically challenged stores. Some of them are maybe close to a food desert. Frankly, I ran a store that was considered a mile away or two miles away from what would be considered a food desert. And so we had how do we get food to that area? You know, so the delivery model, frankly, and we do it now, but the delivery model started when we got to make that decision in the store. How do we take care of this community? Mm -hmm. um, so you know, being able to think like a businessman without all the financial risk was mm -hmm. really the, the, the caveat. It was the kind of the icing on the cake of having a career with Hy-Vee. In our company, if you look around, um, if you see the name tags of our employees, everyone from cashiers to the bakers to the meat cutters to the you see 20 years of service, 30 years of service, 40 years of service, 50 years of service. I mean, we have had folks that, again, started when they're two, and now they're 52, and they're still working, you know, still working for the company. And that's, a lot of it is, it goes back to just being able to have fun. So when the, store, when the CEO asked me to come in this role where I'm helping to focus on our diversity and inclusion journey, um, and also focusing on uh, making connections in our communities and areas where we haven't done the best job and need to be better, um, I said, this is a no-brainer. I mean, I get to go out and again and talk to people and get paid to do it, so it's pretty mm -hmm. fun. So with that, I'm yeah. here. You know, um, <laughs> well, don't know if I answer all your questions, but... We've got more time. We're going to come back to you because, right. you know, Hy-Vee, first, we're, we're fortunate 
Hy-Vee is fortunate to have you, and we're all fortunate to have Hy-Vee because they're really one of the leaders in workforce development and retention and, and, and good food jobs. So, um, so thanks for being here. Um, Yale, I want to sort of dig into the substance of workforce um, development and, and economic development in the, in, the, in the food sector. Of course, the Food Trust is, is truly one of the real leaders and innovators in this sector for years, having um, uh, uh, thought about new approaches to, um, uh, um, to hunger and food access and economic mobility. Um, tell us how the Food Trust sort of understands the role of grocery stores and sort of bricks and mortar retail operations in, um, in, in, in workforce development and economic development in the communities that you work in? Sure. Um, well, I think it was great to have Congressman Evans here earlier today. Um, we've worked with him for almost 20 years, I think, at this point. But I mean, when, when he was talking earlier today, I was flashing back to, um, by the way, I used to be so scared of him. <laughs> I was, I mean, 20 years ago, I'll t I'm having to say my age too, so I'm 50, so I'm 30 years old. And, and he was the head of the Appropriations Committee for the state of Pennsylvania. He's the most powerful guy in the state, you know. And I still remember when I first being in the meetings with him physically shaking. <laughs> but, um, but it's been a wonderful experience working with him over the many years. And, um, but I remember in the early days him saying to me and others um, that a lot of lower income communities um, they are under-resourced in a variety of ways. And any, any community needs a decent bank. And, and, you know, people in your community need a place to access quality health care, uh, decent education, um, transportation is oftentimes challenging, and food is also a piece of this as well. In a lot of lower income areas, you can't find high quality food retail. And, um, and also, it's tough to find a quality job. So the, but the lack, like we were talking about how we had done the mapping earlier, showing that areas that had a lack of healthy food retail of grocery stores also had higher rates of diet-related death and disease. And the, um, but in addition to this, we also see that uh, lost commercial vitality. Um, the, this makes the communities less livable. Um, the local economies are not thriving. So the thing about the food trust is we came at this from a public health perspective and a social justice perspective, saying um, we believe that all people um, have a right to affordable and healthy food. Um, it's not okay that you don't have a decent place to go shopping in your neighborhood. Um, but what was interesting also, um, as we talked to not just policymakers but folks in the neighborhood as well, um, was this piece around the grocery store, as Congressman Evans brought up, as the economic anchor. And that when you have a, a quality grocery store in the neighborhood, and you know this, other, other uh, retail stores open up around you. And it, it, um, it has this wonderful ripple effect of creating jobs in the neighborhood and local jobs. So the, um, I don't know, you know these statistics better than me, but, um, but different grocers we've talked to said, for example, if you open up a, um, a big grocery store, it's about 24 jobs per 10,000 square feet or something like that. So if you open up a big grocery store, you can create as many as like 150 to 200 jobs. Um, and, that's, um, and that's exciting stuff. And I've personally been to a ton of grocery store openings throughout the country, you know, not just in Pennsylvania, but throughout the country. And, um, 
you know, you would think maybe it's not such a big deal, but if your neighborhood hasn't had a grocery store, um, you know, when I'm at the ribbon cuttings, it's amazing to actually, I'm not kidding, people actually have tears, tears in their eyes <laughs> saying, thank you for bringing the store to the neighborhood, this is gonna change my life. Right? I mean, it sounds like I'm over the top, this is exactly what people are saying though, and it's, it's a very cool moment. You know, we've, in New Orleans, there are like big parades, the mayor comes out, and, and it's not just, it's because, and that enthusiasm is real. That's like, uh, this is something that, like I said, I've personally experienced, yeah. and it's very exciting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Say, so let me come back to you. Um, so 21 years, and you're talking about the folks with the 30-year and 40-year, uh, ribbons. Um, what's the secret sauce? What is Hy-Vee doing that is that is keeping folks in these jobs? That's making them proud of their jobs. That's sort of creating a good food workforce. What are the sort of the, top two or three things? The, that are? It, and thanks for saying top two or three because I can rattle off probably a hundred right now. <laughs> um, I, I really things you know. I think for one, um, and maybe it's part of Midwest thing. You know. Um, I'd say the biggest thing is our ownership model. We're a 100% employee-owned company. So really, we, we look are at that. Are there other big retailers that are employee-owned? Um, not that I can think of. I didn't of. mean to cut off the applause. No, thank so. <laughs> <laughs> you. Um, not that I can think of most yeah. of them. I know there's some other companies. I know like United Airlines is sure. an employee-owned yeah, company. But in the um, food retail space. Yeah, so right. with that, you know, the unique ownership model with us, we'd say you know, the number one thing you got to do is take care of home, right? Just like if you own a home, you own it. You want to take care of it. Take care of your building. Take care of your customers that pay your paycheck every single day. Take care of your other employees. Um, you're a stockholder. You get stock in the company. Um, some of us get to buy it direct, some through the 401k program. We share our profits across, which becomes also a pride thing and a competitive aspect, which is good. Um, and then also, you know, the duty, again, I'll, I'll reiterate the duty to make sure that everyone who comes through your doors is treated like gold. Mm -hmm. Those are the things that, yeah. that the ownership model create. Along with that, um, you know, again, our stores are autonomous. Every single store gets to run like it's its own building. As a matter of fact, when we ran a store, and it's, when I'm out recruiting, what I do is say, hey, when Hy-Vee picked me, they basically said, here's $20 million, go run a store. Call me if you need help. Call mm -hmm. us if you need help. We have your back. Go make money for the company and make money for yourself. That's how we run. So if you want to really think about the uniqueness of that kind of model, everyone has a buy-in. And you know, those who don't see it, maybe they don't stick around but they have the buy-in. And we focus on five major fundamentals to get us there, helpful, friendly, honest, respectful, and dedicated. And if you really you follow those five things, and um, again, going back to like people and you like food, it just, it's just a natural fit for, for um, enjoying what you do, and that's how you take it from a job to career. Um, again, I wanted to work with Bill Gates, or I wanted to play football. I knew that wasn't gonna happen at early <laughs> mm -hmm. age, right? So. What am I going to do that's fun? Maybe give me a little of that competitive spirit. Enjoy what I do. Yeah, work hard and be um, rewarded for it, either financially or just, you know, enjoying what you do and get that warm and fuzzy feeling when you go to work every day, yeah. um, not really sitting in the office. So yeah. those are the things I think really keep us to it. And then spending the time with a lot of the youth and also the people who are at a disadvantage and really showing them the opportunity, being able to relate with them, yeah. you know will continue to perpetuate. So Scott, you're training the future Hy-Vee workers. You guys work with ShopRite, and um, mm -hmm. uh, you're, 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 you're providing the employees for these workplaces. What, in your perspective, makes for one a sort of well-trained employee, and, and how, are you, how are you working with the retailers to keep these folks engaged and happy and, and sort of 
well employed. Yeah, and I think Silo's description of thinking about the difference between a job versus a career pathway, both with employers and on the training end for how we're helping young people think about that is super useful. Um, uh, ShopRite has been a, a great partner for us in Philadelphia since 2016. So just kind of our, our training model has evolved a bit. So the, the build and youth build has traditionally been construction building trades, which we and all 270 youth build programs in the US and 21 countries offer. But then kind of based on labor, local labor market demand, we're able to expand into additional career pathways. So healthcare, childcare, and then for us, three years ago, this business administration customer service excellence training. Um, that Starbucks initially seeded with a grant for us to do barista food service training. And then we're super fortunate to get matched up with ShopRite, um, which initially launched a partnership that was focused on a, a relatively straightforward goal, but a lot of complexity in doing it, of providing youth build students and alumni with a retail experience and a mentor, which has been hugely important um, to support a successful transition into their workforce. And ShopRite was specifically interested in youth build alumni working in their, their bakeries. Um, and the pathway is initially a customer service associate job with an opportunity to become a pastry chef. So we have a, a handful of students and alumni and growing quickly in this pathway. And I think importantly, the ShopRite HR personnel have been extremely communicative, um, both with staff and with alumni and from the entire hiring process to the onboarding process. We're fortunate as a, a workforce agency, and not every agency has this resource, that we have full-time staff who are matched with graduates for a year after they leave as they're transitioning into college and careers. And so they're doing mentoring, they're doing action planning, mm -hmm. but we also need employer partners who are willing to pick up the phone and have conversations and show up with us and our young people and tell the story of what's going well, what's not going well, what's in between in terms of how our alumni are doing. Not every employer does that. ShopRite consistently shows up for those conversations. As an example, in the, the first kind of mental toughness orientation that we start our program year with, as young people are transitioning back into school and work, having not been in those pathways for a while, um, we do a college and career expo day, and ShopRite leadership shows up at those days and describes what the pathway is, what the job opportunity, so showing up in those spaces is, is hugely important yeah. Yeah. Um, and makes a big difference when you have employer partners committed to do it. So, Claire, you're, you're um, part of your, I suppose, a big part of your job is, is to launch and implement a new strategy for Feeding America um, focused on sort of looking ahead to 2025. Yeah. Um, I know there's lots of facets to it, and uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll be able to learn all about it um, online and watching this space moving forward. But what, what parts of the strategy, we, when we think of Feeding America, we think of feeding. Um, we're here to talk about jobs. Um, how, how does Feeding America's programs interrelate with, um, with job security, and workforce development because we know it's all interrelated and, and I, I'm not sure folks know you all in that mm -hmm. in that light but it's so critical. Right. Yeah so um, let me start by just a very high level um, understanding of what the pillars are and the quick migration to those pillars. Um, as an organization we've existed for decades um, and emerged out of uh, a need that one man saw to feed people uh, that he thought was temporary. Um, and um, his, um, our founder, I believe, would be disappointed by our current existence um, because he would have preferred that we not be necessary. Um, and yet we are. Mm. And we fed um, approximately 47 million Americans last year. Um, around four billion meals. 
as you mentioned. And one of the things that's happened naturally um, that we simply, we took the time to actually memorialize and now we're, we're working to institutionalize is that as people in our network saw hungry people, they had this irresistible urge to not only feed them, but to help them to not need um, to be fed by us mm. in the future. So it underlying our 2025 strategy is an expectation of ourselves and an understanding of, our, of the moment. So an, an understanding that we are uniquely able to do more um, and, and a commitment to help to empower people so that they have um, food security on a going forward basis. Um, that is um, a space for a definite intersection. Mm -hmm. um, there's so much data and I was in finance in the past and one of the reasons that I was drawn to finance is I use this colloquial expression from my often used in my hometown which is math don't lie, right? Mm -hmm. um, and math really does some fuzzy math in DC right now, but <laughs> no. well, first you have to define math. That's <laughs> not math. Fair enough. Um, math does not lie. Uh, math is remarkably consistent <laughs> in that it does not lie. Um, so, when you look at at the data, um, you know you see um, this um, this opportunity uh, to make a meaningful impact. And you, I also stop and I reflect on the fact that if I think about myself as a, as a discrete human being and think about the fact that in this country, um, a person who was born to my grandparents on both sides were sharecroppers. Neither of my parents graduated from high school. Mm. I became an executive vice president at Fortune One and I'm the CEO at Feeding America. A country that can do that mm. can solve hunger. Mm. A country that throws away 72 billion pounds of perfectly edible food mm. every year can solve hunger. And in solving hunger, we actually solve so many of the other issues here. People who suffer from food insecurity come to work um, less able to perform. Um, so one of the things that I'm excited by, I talked about it before, I like math because it doesn't lie um, when you don't shade numbers. If you use the right numbers and you add, subtract, it does the same thing every time. Um, but the other thing is that everybody should want to do it. Mm. Um, this is one of those, you know, there's a the cliche win-win. This is a win-win situation. Businesses should want to embrace this movement because it will enhance productivity mm -hmm. for businesses. Humans should want this movement generally because it will enhance the quality of life and the longevity of other human beings in this country. Um, it's something we can be so proud of and I'm, I'm, I'm confident that we're gonna make yeah. precipitous progress. So inside of the food, of the, our system, um, having seen some of that, we started long ago before we had a strategy that said it we had people who had um, workforce development programs inside of food banks yeah um, and in pantries um, um, and um, so now what we're doing is we're focusing on it and another finance one is we know that you move what you measure so we're measuring it we're yeah. putting out big goals um, but attainable yeah. 
goals. Um, and we're going to measure ourselves against those big goals. And we're going to make precipitous progress. Um, uh, we're going to achieve those goals. Um, thank you for that. And I want to encourage folks to think about questions they might have and jot them down. We'll come to those in a minute. And for folks that are watching online, uh, you can tweet your questions using the hashtag, using the hashtag TalkGoodJobs. Um, mm -hmm. And we'll come to those in, in just a minute. Yale, um, um, uh, first, I've never heard anyone describe a hobby of going and opening and watching grocery store <laughs> openings. So, um, that's impressive. Um, I would share that. I have a weird life. <laughs> well, it's your job. This yeah. sounds like a yeah. preoccupation. I'm not sure. Um, uh, but so you, you, at Food Trust, you've seen so many different retail models and so many mm -hmm. different sort of grocery models in different geographies, serving different communities. And um, um, what, what, from a from a jobs perspective, what models are working? I mean, it's a it's a and I'll, full disclosure: I'm an investor in an online. Um, uh, uh, retailer um, uh, uh, in the food sector, but um, what what's what's working? What's providing jobs? What's satisfying sort of consumer demand um, and uh, and workforce development? So, yeah, no, good question. I think that um, some retailers are doing it better than others, and um, I just want to first acknowledge that um, we have to we do we need to do better, and we need to ensure that. Food retail jobs provide a living wage for people. Um, it was brought, as brought up earlier, a lot of folks that are working aren't making enough to make it through the month and feed themselves, and that's not acceptable. Um, and if we're going to help to bring a grocery store to a community, um, we need to make sure that the jobs provided are good enough jobs that folks can afford to feed their own families. Otherwise, we're not making the progress we need to towards solving the problem of food insecurity and hunger. Um, but yes, there's some good examples out there. So, mm -hmm. Um, and it was brought up earlier, um, Brown's ShopRite is one example in Philadelphia. Um, they, have a, they have a job training program for returning citizens. And uh, it's a six, you know, you, maybe you know the details better than I do. It's like a six week uh, training thing. Mm -hmm. And they have social workers there. And it's a guaranteed uh, job at the end of it. Um, so some, one nice thing about food retail is it can be a, a stepping stone into a job where maybe it would be tough for you to get hired. Um, and also, there's a you can move up the ladder in, in a lot of these grocery store jobs, which is cool also. So you might start as a bagger, but potentially there's a, a ladder to be able to work up and make even make better money. Um, some of the grocery stores are unionized and have pretty good benefits, but not all of them. Um, there's a good example in Detroit. Um, there's a uh, there's some really great independently owned examples as well as as well as chain examples, <laughs> but uh, but there's a lot of really cool family owned grocery stores. Um, there's a there's a fund in Michigan uh, created by the Fair Food Network um, called the Michigan Good Food Fund and uh, kind of modeled off of these uh, fresh food financing initiative kind of models, and uh, they funded a grocery store called the Imperial Food Market in Detroit. Um, and it's these five brothers, I think, if I understand the, if I remember correctly. Um, and uh, so, and they were doing, they're doing so great. They just hired another 50 folks. But there's some good examples out there nationally. And um, I'm happy to, uh, there's also a ton of these different uh, stories on our website that I am going to plug, uh, healthyfoodaccess.org. <laughs> okay, good. Um, so one last question before we, before we open it up um, to our friends here. Um, um, the retail model is evolving, and online is an increasing part of the of the consumer retail experience. 
from each of your perspective, I'm, I'm curious, you know, it, does it matter? Do you think about it? Is it upending things? How does it impact, um, uh, in your opinion, sort of um, jobs and wages and workforce development? Uh, you know, is it a competitive threat? Is it providing new opportunities? How do you train people uh, to not work at ShopRite, but to work at some online place? Um, I, uh, knowing that Feeding America uh, relies on partnerships with many retailers, how, how does this all um, uh, uh, come into play? So the role of online, um, uh, just some quick quick thoughts before we uh, turn, to, turn to the audience. I had the, the, I don't know what you'd call it, the dubious, a dubious distinction of being a part of a strategic team that was looking at the impact of online on retail. This was in um, your Walmart days? In my Walmart days. Yeah. Um, I was in finance there, um, as, and Walmart would admit that it was very late to the game. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Amazon um, was a small bookseller at one time. Does anybody remember that Amazon used to be a small bookseller? Um, and the kinds of things, and I, I would say, as you were going through that list of what do you think it is, I would say all of the above. Um, so is it a threat? Yes. Is it an opportunity? Absolutely, mm. right? Um, and what I'd love to hear from others as well, and it, it informs looking at, at what we're doing, it's a similar scenario, which is what impact technology is having on the universe. Um, and it is having significant impacts on the way that we live our lives and what we expect as well. So when I heard the comments earlier, um, from all of you, actually, um, what I was, what felt good about those comments in particular for me was understanding, I, I heard a, a great um, presentation about technology that said that we often, as humans, we've made mistakes around how we even think about technology. And we've asked what can, um, what is it that computers can't do, right? Mm. And every time we've had the list, we've been wrong. Computers will never be able to beat a world master at chess. I think that happened. Yeah, a while ago. it happened a while back, right? So whatever we put on the list. And they said, we need to pivot from that to what are humans built to do, right? Mm. And that human contact, um, that the things that you talked about that often people associate with their local grocer and that... Uh, provides a disadvantage for larger retailers if they don't have that. The secret sauce of retail and the reason that I would think brick and mortar can be vibrant and vital in, in a, an ecosystem of retail would be if there's a human touch that you get mm -hmm. and that you want when you walk in the room. The yeah. warmth of a human smile actually triggers some stuff inside of your brain that a computer cannot trigger inside of your brain. Um, so I think that that's part of, of the key, is really understanding technology, recognizing it's not leaving. It's only accelerating what it can do, and then thinking about being human-centered in what we do. And um, if we had the chance, and maybe I'll, get a, I'll plan a question for, there's a stigma attached to poverty in this country that's reprehensible, right? And part of what we are uniquely able to do at Feeding America that technology won't do mm -hmm. is treat people with dignity and respect. Mm -hmm. 
connect to human beings who are going through something difficult in their lives. Um, that's something that, that the machine won't and that we yeah. will and that so many people do um, inside of our network every day. Yeah. T t tweet me your answers. Um, just quick answers on how online is impacting you or how you're impacting it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the evolution of work, and this goes beyond technology, that any workforce agency that doesn't evolve to change with the needs of students and the needs of the workforce isn't, isn't worth much. So I think any curriculum that we develop has a combination of kind of technical training skills that I think looks different for online than it does for bricks and mortar, but it also has a set of foundational skills that people used to call soft skills, but I think that kind of undersells the significance, mm -hmm. and that's broadly transferable. But agree with Claire's point that there's a human-centered element to this, and if we move what we measure, that there's a quality job definition that has to apply equally to online as it does bricks and mortar. So just a real quick shout out to Generation Work, which Aspen and Reimagine Retail have been supportive of. And in Philly, we've been part of a collaborative that's kind of defined what a quality job definition is. Mm -hmm. And there's four factors around dependability, two around opportunity, one around choice points for individual workers. And that definition, if we're being human-centered, has to apply equally, not just within food retail, but broadly across the sector and others. Yeah. Absolutely agree. Yeah, if I'm just going to tweet, I'll just, I'll just back that by saying. Just retweet. I'll retweet. <laughs> well, exactly. I'm retweeting, but no, nah, if it's going to be. Uh, same for online retail jobs. They have to be quality jobs, and people have to be able to afford to live and feed their families, whether it's a retail job that's brick and mortar or online. We have to make sure these are quality jobs. Um, tweet, hashtag, whatever. <laughs> I don't do much tweeting. Exactly what Claire said. Couldn't agree with it more. Um, to add with that, you know, you can look reality in the, in the eye and deny it. Because if, if you read the book by Steve Case, The Third Wave, if you haven't read it yet or heard about it, it really talks about where we are. I mean, I remember the days with, before the internet. Some of you are I'm dating myself. The gray hair has died. It's not gray hair. <laughs> um, but things are changing so fast, we have to move with it. And that's really more the narrative right now. It should be got to stay up with the wave versus wondering and twiddling your thumbs about, oh my gosh, we're behind. You know, Get ahead of it and enjoy it and be involved with it. So I think we're doing that too right now. Food, grocery. My wife orders food <coughs> online. I go to the gas station because I'm time starved. I never really go to the grocery store very often. I mean, so building different lifestyles. Yeah, good. We've got a room full of folks and a whole list of folks online um, uh, that are engaged in these issues and have questions for you all. So um, raise your hand if you have one, and I'll, uh, um, and I'll reach out. Go ahead. Um, there's a microphone coming to you. So. Mm -hmm. And the, and the, okay, and the briefer you. your question, the more complete answers. OK, I'll try to be brief. Um, so for the grocery industry, you know, what are ways we know that grocers are competitive? So rather than trying to force you know, grocers to share data or you know, um, do more around providing good jobs, what can we incentivize for grocery stores to either share data about you know, the types of jobs that are in their stores or ways that they are doing better? How can we create you know, this culture that it's you know, a, a promising thing that all grocery retailers want to do so that we know that their, employers, their employees are having good jobs? So is it more based on like employee data or like job descriptions? What are you asking for? You're like financials. I guess which things do you think would be most effective well, in I, ensuring I, I that there are more? I should tell people this, and I know Claire and you guys probably know this, that the grocery industry averages 1% net profit. So right. one penny on every dollar is taken to the bank. Mm -hmm. So that's always knowing that, knowing that going in, because if you come in with a strategy, <coughs> you want to make sure you design it around understanding that there's not much room for error at all. 
right? And so that you talk about prices, you're like, oh, that's high. Well, there's a reason for that, maybe. So I'd say that um, it's more about, I think, the equity or what you can offer the employee. You know, what, what, the, what the prospective employee can be, um, whatever community aspects go along with that to design in order to just really connect with everybody. You know, like I tell people when I hire your kid at 16 that I promise you that they'll be ready to enter the workforce before they even, um, you know, before they even finish. So I, I focus more on those types of things versus, finance. for one, we can't share financials because we're private, so I never, that's never really part of the equation. But I focus on more what, what opportunities we can help them with to continue with their future. But if we thought that when people think they have a common enemy, they're more inclined to come together. And I think um, as long as there's an incentive, a monetary incentive, to not be transparent about things, then there's not likely to be transparency. If, but where I think you might get access to data would be if a trade organization and its constituency thought, well, because of what's happening with online, we don't have enough people who are coming into the workforce. Um, we need, as a collective, to go and get this talent. Um, we're, at, we're in a war for talent. Then I think you might get more transparency through those trade associations as vehicles versus private organizations choose to be private for a lot of reasons, but one of them is because they get to be private. It does seem like there's, there's uh, in that vein, there's um, what I would call sort of pre-competitive um, mm -hmm. areas that um, might be ripe for collaboration between otherwise competitors and, yes. and public disclosures. You know, in, in our role in helping the Rockefeller Foundation thinking about their work on food waste reduction, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's an area where, you know, retailers aren't competing on the mm -hmm. amount of food that they waste. Exactly. Um, uh, or, or food that is wasted in the retailer environment. Um, and that seems like a, a place where an, a, an industry challenge could come together with data, with sort of visibility on data, and sort of again, sort of pre-competitive. Mm -hmm. um, e easier than it sounds, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. um, yes, sir. I think there's a microphone. There you go. Uh, thanks, everybody. I'm Carl Polzar. I do a lot of research and advocacy on financial inclusion of people in the bottom half of the, the spectrum. And I'm, t I'm wondering about paid sick days. So I was, uh, I've just got, I've got an article coming out in the Health Affairs blog about, I was concerned about personal care workers, people that, that handle patients, uh, daycare workers. And now I, I just Googled food, uh, food retail workers are low wage and a good chunk of them don't have paid sick days so they can transmit disease. They have a huge incentive to come to work sick. I mean, I, do we, uh, I'm promoting a, like a, at least four days a year and that would mean you'd have to set aside 2% of your payroll and have a plan for backup, which seems like if you're in that business, you ought to have anyhow. Is that something that makes sense? I mean, and I, most of the, the uh, I think about, since about 30 to 40% of the people don't have it, it means that most of the employers are providing it, but some are not. So is that, is it, is, do we need a federal standard? Would it make sense? Would it bankrupt some of these food, food uh, retailers? So paid family uh, and medical. Mm -hmm. Paid sick leave. I'm also interested in in broader sort of paid leave for employees' needs, but but sick in sick in particular, um, how does it play in the retail environment? Well, I think it's important. I, I think it's totally important to have something that you know just a level of insurance. Unfortunately, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of 
employees who don't. I can think of our own stores when it comes to what we call flex time. So you can use it for sick, you can use it for vacation or whatever. It is something that comes up. You can use it about an hour at a time, right? If you need to go to the doctor, you can have two hours to go to the doctor if you need it. Um, that's more for our full and regular time employees, not necessarily for part-time employees. Those are probably the ones who may not be able to afford not to come to work when they are sick or their child, child, child is sick. And I think that's something that we brought up. We're going through and focusing on our benefit and fringe benefit modernization and how do we continue to attract folks, right? In a 50% turnover industry or, or more, we want to lower that as much as possible. And so those are the things we're looking at. I think you're absolutely right. You got to find a way to set funds aside. I think naturally their turnover may go down. You know, how many employees, employers, employees lose their job because they missed that one last day of work and had no coverage Right, and just you know the experience that comes with that, and then the, um, whatever goes from there. So you start lose less turnover. You know, we say six thousand dollars ahead every time we turn somebody over. It's going to pay for itself if you really think about it. So I know it's something that's very important to us, and it's on our table now. In my in my position now, I get to have a little bit of a voice in that too. So, and we know from our data that. Um, the inability to take sick leave has a direct impact on whether or not you're going to be food secure. Mm -hmm. um, Scott is here. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I was just speaking to that. Yeah, I think, I mean, my colleagues on the panel know the, the sector response on this better. I know from the perspective of young people, when we worked on this quality job definition with the Generation Work, the Casey Foundation folks, that the young people saying of the, the four dependability criteria, the access to benefits was top on the list and that was most focused on paid time off in healthcare. Um, and in some ways, we thought that the family sustaining wage would kind of be number one on the list of young people, and it certainly mattered, but it's necessary and it's not sufficient. There's a lot of young people who are saying it's more about the conditions of work. Do I have a manager who cares about me? Mm -hmm. Do I have access to benefits? So I, I, mean, I think from the perspective of young people in the pipeline, it matters a ton. Other questions? Yes, ma'am. Oh, sorry. Uh, thank you for having this incredible panel today and um, blushing a little bit with all of the, the great energy and, and uh, folks uh, sort of in my arena. My name is Elijah Joy. I work at Bread for the City in their Sustainable Agriculture and Foodways program. Um, I started doing healthy living, farm to table, which we now call seed to block uh, focus, which is, you know, dealing with... Uh, food insecurity in Washington um, in a variety of ways through our food pantry, which has been going on longer than our program, but uh, our program was focused more on direct service, which it still has a direct service aspect, but since I've come in, I've done a lot of uh, healthy living classes, and you know, equity in the food space is a, is a security issue for me as far as on the retail side as a chef. Um, you know, I don't have a restaurant, uh, I don't have retail. I've done, I've done pop-ups since before they were even called pop-ups. Mm -hmm. I learned from people who came before me who did this work. Uh, I do plant-based cooking exclusively, very soulful cuisine, um, and come from a long line of folks in this region who, who've done this work. And you know, since the outburst of the changes in the city, uh, um, you know, Whole Foods once seen as like a gem is sort of almost a curse right now and, and to, to certain people. And, um, and you know, there's a sort of boxing out a very quality uh, 
um, people, including myself, uh, who are very capable of handling you know, food security issues um, on our own, for our own community here. Um, I'm thankful that I work in a space now at Red for the City that's giving me the leverage and the sort of autonomy to sort of forge in, into a new way. We've been doing some cooperative education um, and hosting the cooperative stakeholders here, here in Washington in, at, at our center and uh, a co-op 101 session, which is then spun into a little working co-op 101, which we have some really interesting partners, some in this room at Martha's Table. They're letting us use their commercial kitchen and we're doing our training. And we've launched something called Sweet Potato Fam, is a little co-op uh, uh, incubator of sorts. We're not a full-on co-op, um, but we're working with the principles, democratic principles. So really, I want to see, I, I, was, I was more interested in uh, 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 hearing what Ms. Babineau had to say um, as far as Feeding America and, and some of the newer uh, areas you're, you're, you're moving into and uh, entrepreneurial training and really, um, because what we're doing is showing people how to take food right to the market. So we're in four restaurants, going to be five this week, and anybody in the room want some sweet potato pies? <laughs> and, uh, the, and we grew these uh, sweet potatoes at our partnership uh, farm a partner at UDC, land-grant university here, and they are certified, USD certified. <laughs> and so, and we have also launched a, a few uh, original <coughs> products. Right now we have the new white, Japanese white sweet potato pie. And, do you have a um, question for the panel? I do. <laughs> I'm just like, holla, holla at me, but holla, I want to hear, uh, you know, where this is going. I, I kind of feel alone a lot in this work, mm -hmm. and I want to see where people are with this a little bit more. So what are the connections that we can make between yeah. all the different mm -hmm. levels of work going on? Because there's so much great grassroots yeah. work happening as well. And, and it's one of the things that's unique about Feeding America, and I will once again say um, today of all days, go out and donate to Feeding America, because our network is so wide that it not only includes our, our headquarters work that we do, then over 200 food banks, but we help to support over 60,000 food pantries mm. and, and soup kitchens around the United States. And I want to know more about yours, and I have people in the room who are local to DC, so we'll make sure that we get, get the name of what you're doing. And what we're finding about one of the great things about having such a vast network is that great ideas come from all types of directions, some of it from bottom up, some from the middle down and up, some from the top down. Um, and we're highly receptive. We just want, uh, we're desperate to win this mm. battle. Um, and we're looking for our partners who can help us to do it. And we've found innovation in remarkable places. Mm. So I'd love to hear more and we'll follow up and try to understand what you're doing. Thank you. Um, let me introduce Ona, the head of the DC Food Policy Council, which, and the, the, the food policy director for the mayor and the District of Columbia. Oh, I'm honored to be on Ona's <laughs> Food Policy Council, mm -hmm. Ona. Thanks for the intro, Eric. <laughs> uh, um, so as Eric said, um, I work for the city, and DC is really interested in spurring new grocery development, particularly in our um, neighborhoods with low grocery access. And um, to be honest with you, it hasn't gone that well. Uh, we have tax incentives for grocery stores. Since those tax, tax incentives have existed, we actually lost a grocery store in a um, low-income part of the city, and we didn't gain any. Um, and uh, I think as we're looking at what local government can do, I'd be interested in hearing 
um, from your perspectives, like how do you encourage and convince retail to go into neighborhoods that don't meet their typical metrics or demographics of what they're looking for? Like I've heard, I heard a grocery retail at one point say, we look at um, pretty exclusively how many college degrees are in the, um, you know, the several blocks around where we're going to locate, um, which seems like a really bad measure of uh, who w needs food and is willing to pay for food. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm curious, how do you um, how do you be more convincing? Where do you see the role of local government in um, in working with retailers and investors? Well, I can tell you that that's that's always a debate all the time in rooms. And it's good to have healthy conversations because sometimes you look at a location, say financially, do it at cost of land, right? How many rooftops, whatever it could be. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make sense to build a store here. But then there's the other side of it that says, you know, if you look at the data, but then you have the gut feeling, hey, we need a store here, mm -hmm. right? We need to support this community. You talk about the hub, if you want to continue to, to really just spark growth and spark, you know, everyone looking to move up in a community. You know, I've, I've ran stores in that community. Matter of fact, talk about a store opening two weeks ago, one of my old stores that I ran um, just in June was flooded, got flooded by oh. some really bad rains in Des Moines, mm -hmm. and was closed up until two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And it's been totally gutted and redone. And this was a store 10 years ago. I remember being uh, coming up through the ranks hearing mm -hmm. about we were gonna close it and move it out to a more suburban area. and. It was a big deal, and we weren't. We ended up leaving the store there. To see people cry because that store is there, we know it's not going to turn a profit in three months. We know it's not going to turn a profit in one year, two years. I know the financials, and I remember seeing them. It's not going to turn for a while. But the hub for the community and the community outreach is—you can't measure that. You know, it's important. It's not going to bankrupt us, and we know it's going to continue to drive business to either all of our other locations or just that general as a whole. And Together, we hope that we can partner with, you know, if it's community leaders or if it's, it can just be the hub for folks to come in and hang out on Sunday after church or whatever it is. We know that's important for that neighborhood. Yeah. And it's going to help our brand in the long run, period. So. Now, if it doesn't ink, it tends not to happen. That's the reality, if right? It doesn't, if it doesn't ink, if you can't oh. see a path to profitability, it tends not to happen. <coughs> However, um, I will tell you, I saw Magic Johnson, um, he is defying so much, so many stereotypes about what will ink and uh, let me stop mm -hmm. you. What will be profitable and what won't be profitable in urban centers? And I just heard him speak last week. I think it was or the week before last. And he had he makes a compelling case, and I encourage you to understand because I want to understand better too. What exactly is it that he's done? Because he, he's been told you can't build a movie theater in um, on Crenshaw. You'll never make money. And then he builds it, and it's one of the top producers. Um, Starbucks, nope, nope. People in low-income communities will not pay $3 for a cup of coffee. Yes, they do. He, he's got very highly profitable Starbucks. And there must be an ecosystem that has to be created. I don't understand the financials behind it yet. But I encourage us to be thinking about, what about what's happening there? Because he's figured something out, and he's actually rolling it out across urban centers in a lot of different types of places. And I'll bet it can work with food, too. So yeah. I want to understand it. And if you figure it out before me, call me. Okay. Scott, yeah, last, last minute on, on how to really make it work. Yeah, and I, I think this is somewhat related but broader than store locations, just to remind us of how racial equity and inclusion agenda is represented in the, the pipeline strategy we're discussing. 
So in the, the city of Philadelphia, Generation Work is trying to have a racial equity and inclusion conversation. And one of our partners recently did a focus group with students and one of our graduates who was saying, you know, youth build prepared me for the job and the technical skills. You did not prepare me for the racism that I would experience in the workforce. Mm -hmm. And that is not unique to, to food retail. That is unique to America and the society we live in. But if we're not having real conversations about race and racism and we have employer partners where we've had really difficult conversations with the social identity work group that we run out of our school to say, here's the experience of how young people of color, that's 99% of our student population, are experiencing your workforce. And that's got to be part of this conversation. Otherwise, we won't diversify the pipeline and the quality jobs won't be meaningful for the young people who most deserve them. Thank you for yeah, bringing absolutely. that in. Yeah, I'll, um, last brief word to you. Yeah, I'll, I'll second that and also say um, many of the, the, the great majority of grocery owners are white owned. But there is some, some great examples out there of grocery stores owned by people of color. We have to do, and we have to do better when it comes to um, racism in the workforce at grocery stores. Um, but through healthy food re uh, financing, we're able to support more and more grocers of color. And this is something that we have to do better at. And this is something that we're working on mm. uh, into the future. Um, I think Maureen's going to wrap us up here, but I want to. Um, I uh, thank you all um, uh, for your thoughts. It takes an ecosystem, um, lots of issues at play here that are all interrelated. Um, it's great to have this ecosystem of direct service <laughs> providers, of training, of, uh, of, of um, uh, new service models, and, uh, and of course, the old standards that are doing it right. Um, so um, th th thanks to you all, and remember to support um, each of these organizations yes, in your absolutely. own way. Um, Maureen, thank you for having us. <laughs> of how we structure our panels. Um, so uh, thank you all for coming. Thank you all for a really fabulous conversation on and, and uh, giving a strong finish on the equity issue, which is so important in food retail and in uh, jobs in general. Um, this is uh, our last uh, event in our Working in America series in 2018, but please come back in 2019 when we will have more to talk about working in America. So thank you again. Thank you.